Good afternoon again, everyone. My name is Glenn Parkinson, President of Canadian Club Toronto, and glad to be your host this afternoon. And welcome to everyone who's joining us online at CanadianClub.org. Whether you're joining us online or in person, our season is made possible by the generosity of our sponsors. Today's event is sponsored by KPMG and EY. I'd also like to thank our season sponsors, Canadian Bankers Association and our airline partner, Air Canada. As many of you know, we strive to have our events connect with your curiosity. And we encourage you to participate through the talk. So what questions would you have for the CEO of AIMCO? Please use the question cards on your table and motion to the runners we have and they'll bring them up to the front of the moderator and we'll try to work them into the conversation. And for those of you joining online, hit the submit a question button on the right hand side of your screen and we'll land those questions with the team here and bring them forward as well. At this time, I'd like to invite Brian Matthews, partner at KPMG, to come and introduce today's guests. Thanks, Glenn. Um, just by way of quick introduction, Brian Matthews, I'm a partner um, in the advisory services with KPMG, um, based in Edmonton, Alberta. And I, I have the privilege today of uh, introducing Evan and uh, Sabrina. Um, from a professional perspective, I lead KPMG's Government of Alberta account, and uh, as well our AIMCO account. Um, I'd like to say at the outset here, on behalf of KPMG, thank you to the Canadian Club for allowing us to sponsor this event. And uh, now I'm just gonna quickly introduce Evan and Sabrina. Uh, Evan joined AIMCO as CEO in July of 2021, so he's been with the organization just over two years. Previously, Evan served as the CEO of CMHC. Under Evan's leadership, CMHC transformed itself to a client-centered, innovative, and impactful organization. Very similar to what Evan is driving at AIMCO uh, right now. Evan's three-decade career in finance also includes stints with leading investment banking firms in Toronto and New York, and two years as a senior executive with Irving Oil Limited. Evan has a BA in Management Economics from the University of Guelph, a law degree from Osgoode Hall Law School, and has completed Harvard Business School's President's Program in Leadership. Maybe most impressive, Evan, he co-founded Growling Beaver Brevet, the largest single-day fundraiser for Parkinson's in Canada, and Evan mentioned that he's going to be on a bike uh, tour this, this weekend, um, which has raised nearly $2 million over the five years. Evan is a dedicated... Evan is a dedicated cyclist, skier, although he mentioned he has some back challenges here, so Evan, you know, uh, a voracious reader, and he has two adult children, so thank you, Evan. Um, now on to Sabrina, Sabrina Maddow. Sabrina is a columnist for the National Post, where she's known for her bold opinions on topics from politics to pop culture, economics, and equality. And Sabrina was just bending my ear, telling me a bit about that uh, just now. Very impressive. Uh, her columns regularly run on the paper's front page and are considered must-reads for the millennial perspective on Canada's political landscape. Sabrina is also a frequent on-air commentator and has appeared on CP24, Breakfast Television, ET Canada, TiVo's The Agenda, CityLine, and many other broadcasts. 
She's the recipient of multiple national magazine awards and Canadian online publishing awards, as well as the Webby Award. Two very impressive individuals, and with that, I'll invite Sabrina and Evan upstage. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Poor Sabrina's gonna have to sit here and listen to me while I chat for about 10 minutes, but before I do that, I wanna thank KPMG and EY for sponsoring this, and Brian for your introduction. I also wanna thank uh, the First Nations and Indigenous people on whose lands we sit. Stand, I'm standing, you're sitting. And uh, I wanna thank all of you here for, for being here today and eating the same damn thing for lunch. So, like, what are the chances we'd all have chicken? <laughs> and I wanna recognize our Pure Maple Lake pension fund managers, many of whom are here today. Um, look, we all get a fixed amount of time in life, so I'm, I'm really grateful that you would all spend time listening to me and spending this time with us today. I'm going to offer a few thoughts about AIMCO and where we are, and then Sabrina's going to ask the hard questions about APP that I'm going to try and avoid in my remarks. <laughs> so we investors are in the risk business. We can't outperform markets without embracing risk. The trick is to knowing which risks to take, to knowing which to avoid and how much to take once we've decided to take them. And my objective today is to draw back the curtain a little bit on AIMCO and explain how we go about taking risks, how we go about making investments at our company on behalf of our clients. But how can we win when something like two-thirds of money managers underperform the stock market every year? Study after study confirms the efficient markets hypothesis, which says that all information like Everything there is to know is already factored into stock prices all the time. That means that beating the market is mostly about luck, and you really shouldn't pay for luck. The spurious sort of value of security selection reminds me of the joke about the investor who shorted Tesla and got electrocuted. To paraphrase the legendary investor David Swenson, charging fees for giving people stock market advice actually represents a massive wealth transfer from individuals to institutions, in particular mutual funds. Or as John Bogle, the famous CEO of Vanguard Investment Management, who grew that into an $8 billion index fund, said, don't look for the needle in the haystack, just buy the haystack. So what then is the role of active investment management? Why am I standing here? First of all, there are many more asset classes than public equities, and asset allocation decisions among them represent an important lever that portfolio managers pull to create value. Decisions around how much to invest in each asset class and when may actually be the greatest source of value that firms like us can contribute. Under our chief investment officer, who's right here, Dr. Marlene Puffer, under her leadership, AIMCO has shifted from an asset class specific kind of way of investing to one that brings a total portfolio lens, which after all is how our clients look at their money, working across teams and developing comparative metrics. While our clients retain for themselves strategic asset allocation responsibilities, we can offer advice regarding portfolio construction and marginal asset allocation on their behalf, and that adds returns. Also, important, critical exceptions exist to the efficient markets hypothesis. First, only public information is priced into stock prices, which is, of course, why insider trading pays. Secondly, people don't always act in economically rational ways, especially when it comes to money. So prices can be distorted. 
People can be pretty wild, actually, especially in crowds, and markets are crowded. Investors, therefore, can best generate returns by identifying unconventional ideas that have two factors. One, a legal information advantage or insight, and two, you need to have non-economic factors that are distorting prices. Both of these characteristics are actually more prevalent in private markets than in public markets. Larger, more complex investment opportunities, such as we see in private markets, have fewer competitors, and that makes the value of these factors actually higher. That's one key reason why large pension funds like ours tend to make more private investments. <clears throat> in addition to the basic principle of diversification, which I'll come to shortly, successful investing requires three factors, edge, mispricing, and conviction. Edge is that idea, an identifiable basis on which we have some unique information or source of advantage. At AIMCO, we're always asking ourselves, what's so special about our thesis? Second is mispricing, and that's confidence that the current price doesn't reflect the value that you think exists, up or down. And third, conviction, that the price will adjust to come around to your way of thinking. This last factor actually acknowledge, acknowledges that, that, that time matters, and long-term investors like us therefore have more opportunities to realize returns. We can afford the time it might take. Effective risk management funds that conviction that you need to have over time and gives you security when things don't go to plan. Investing, after all, is an example, in, sorry. Investing, after all, in investing, what is comfortable is rarely profitable. Or if, as John Maynard Keynes said, successful investing is anticipating the anticipation of others, patience is a virtue and a source of edge as well. Embracing risk takes a certain mentality, a distanced, calculating, unromantic coldness that welcomes challenge and doesn't bristle. That's why Warren Buffett said he valued temperament over intelligence in an investor. Instead of opting to fail conventionally, hiding behind popular wisdom and strength in numbers, the best invest investors champion unconventional, even pioneering ideas. It therefore demands investing a tolerance for failure. As long as you're right, more than you're wrong, you're actually winning. Kind of like baseball, I guess. Um, at AIMCO, we're launching to fund this idea, an innovation function to institutionalize learning from failure. We're establishing a group to register, prioritize, and in the most promising cases, explore innovative ideas that involve any change in our business processes or strategy. This already exists in our investing function and should. It's the core of how we do. So our intention in doing this is to improve how we make, the, how we make decisions. After all, decision-making is the essence of our being. It's why we exist. In Isaiah's firm, famous essay on decisioning, he drew an important distinction between foxes who know many things and hedgehogs who know one big thing. Think about that. Hedgehogs have the quills. Um, Daniel Kahneman explored a similar idea in his Nobel-winning work, Thinking Fast and Slow. He distinguished between System 1 thinking, the intuitive System 1 thinking, and deliberative System 2 thinking, the type that relies on data and analysis and is patient, logical, deliberate, and rational. That's how a fox thinks. Hedgehogs, by contrast, rely on instinct and intuition. They trust their guts and they act quickly. 
Many successful entrepreneurs knew one big thing. Think of Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who started Google, or Sarah Blakely of Spanx, or Henry Ford even. Now, most unsuccessful entrepreneurs also thought they knew one big thing and were wrong. So the thing about hedgehogs is they're seldom in doubt, but not always right. Experience or wisdom, it turns out, may be less valuable than we believe. The human mind searches constantly for efficiency-seeking heuristics and shortcuts. Fashioning order from life's, caca life's cacophony kind of makes sense as a, as a child for children, but it constrains our imagination as adults. Most neuroscientists actually follow the paradigm that our brains are prediction manufacturing machines. System one thinking, call it our hedgehogness, the resistance to challenge, commitment to our convictions, and proclivity to rely on bias unless we have a practice of challenging our own assumptions. Narratives and priors actually become stronger as we age. Our priors may in fact close our minds and lead to a petrification of thought. Kahneman had this great quote. He said that our comforting conviction that the world makes sense rests on a secure foundation, our almost unlimited ability to ignore our own ignorance. It's actually one of my favorite quotes. Our comforting conviction that the world makes sense rests on a secure foundation, our almost unlimited ability to ignore our own ignorance. System two fox-like thinking therefore requires extra effort as we become, we become more sure of our been there's and done that's. A rigorous data-driven investing process reduces opportunities for cognitive bias and weeds them out via constructive challenge. A culture where employees feel free to speak up, where their diverse ideas are welcome, offer more opportunities to police cognitive bias and avoid poor decision. The value of an inclusive culture, a truly inclusive culture, is really powerful. Embracing psychological safety promotes higher productivity, excellence in decision-making, and much improved risk management. It also demands inclusivity. We believe that a diverse employee population is a huge competitive advantage. And at AIMCO, only about a third of our employees are white men. Our executive committee actually has more women than men. This isn't performative Barbie stuff. It's real, it's moral, and it's strategic for us. And we'll continue to welcome diversity from a wide range of traits as we make decisions. It's core to who we are. Okay, lastly, the inherent value of diversification is overlooked by people pressuring Canadian investment funds, pension funds to invest more at home. <clears throat> I wanna confront this very topical complaint that pension funds allocate something like 4% of our capital to domestic stocks. Sounds low, right? Well, I'll just say this. Given where this criticism is coming from, mostly a few domestic equity-centric fund managers, I suspect they're hoping to see our billions of dollars chasing Canadian stocks and therefore bidding prices higher. They don't mention that the Maple Lake Canadian pension funds collectively have about 13.5% more of our assets in Canadian fixed income, which we treat as essential to hedge our clients' liabilities nor do they acknowledge our investments in Canadian real estate, infrastructure, renewables, private equity, private credit, and mortgages. In fact, taking all asset classes into account, Canadian pension funds have somewhere between a quarter and a half, depending on who we're talking about, of total investments, uh, assets invested in Canada. Canada's share of global GDP in 2022 was about one to one and a half percent. 
That sounds like a pretty overweight position in Canada, and one that's appropriate given the liabilities we're trying to manage. Now, INCO itself has about 43% of our assets invested in Canada, and that's actually kind of high. We own properties like Yorkdale and Square One. Uh, we own the Northern Courier Pipeline in Northern Alberta in partnership with Métis and First Nation communities. We're also building rental housing where it's needed in Canadian cities. However, as everyone knows, an investor can reduce risk without reducing returns by avoiding a portfolio of correlated investments whose fortunes rise and fall together, like having too many eggs in one basket or one country, Canada. So we are therefore unapologetically expanding our presence in London and opening offices in Singapore. Kevin Bong, our new head of Singapore, is actually here. And New York, in order to, yeah, Dave Scudelari, who's heading New York, is not here. <laughs> in order to increase deliberately the potential sources of diversification and return-seeking investments for our clients. Our clients have pension liabilities to fund. At AIMCO, we work on behalf of teachers, police officers, judges, professors, firefighters, civil servants, and so on. We also manage funds for the Alberta Heritage Fund and therefore represent four and a, four, almost four and a half million Albertans. I need to say this. The pension savings of Canadians is not our nation's piggy bank. Maintaining a diversified investment portfolio helps us keep our promises to our clients and our beneficiaries. As fiduciaries, we owe it to them that we maximize our investment returns on their behalf by taking risks responsibly. Now, I'm from Alberta, and folk wisdom goes a long way out west. I want to leave you with one final investing thought. Kenny Rogers said, you got to know when to hold them, you got to know when to fold them, you got to know when to walk away, and you got to know when to run. Thank you. Hi. Okay, time to chat. Yeah. Are you excited or nervous? I'm Excited, yeah. Excited, okay. Sure. Well, we'll get right to it. APP. You, you, <laughs> you had mentioned in your speech, you referenced the idea that's been floated in some major newspapers lately and is becoming more of the discussion that the federal government should require a certain percentage of um, Canadian pension funds to invest in domestic yeah. assets. Yeah. Clearly, you're not for that, not, but can no. you expand on just how big of a liability that would pose if they were to go ahead with that idea? Yeah, uh, it, it would be a lot. You know, some of these pension plans are pay-as-you-go, as opposed to fully um, actuarially assessed pension liabilities. Um, you know, we are, some, many of our clients, many of the folks in the room who represent pension funds, if they don't fund those liabilities with proper investments, you know, who's going to pay for that? The taxpayer. So it's just like the, the, the math doesn't work. Somebody's going to have to pay for this at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And we actually are substantially invested in Canada. It's, it's misrepresenting the truth to say otherwise. Mm -hmm. Now, is there a way the government could incentivize even more investment in Canada without having a dictate come down? Sure. And they've done that with things like the growth fund. Um, we've, we've talked to them, of course, about investing in transition finance, um, financing that... Climate change transition is obviously very important to this government, the federal government, that is. And um, putting concessionary finance on the table will actually attract more capital from us and others. That's one particular area that kind of makes sense because pension funds in particular have, as I said, a tolerance for longer-term investments. And that is one that's probably going to take a while to pay off. But it also represents, we think at AIMCO, one of the great opportunities of investing right now. 
You spoke about AIMCO's um, growing presence in London. Yeah. Uh, you're hiring there. You plan to invest billions over the next few years. Uh, what's the opportunity that's so attractive? It's, as I said, diversification and return seeking. So um, we really think about, we don't do this as strictly as other investors, but the core liability gets hedged by things like Canadian fixed income, real estate, other things that behave like fixed income. And then we seek extra returns through private equity, infrastructure, a few other categories. And um, on a risk-adjusted basis, there's many more opportunities around the world than there exist in slower-growing markets. In general, investment returns correlate with GDP growth, and we are very invested, over-invested, in low-growth economies like Canada, the U.S., mature, and Western Europe. So there, there's a bit of a shift in our emphasis. You've spoken before about the green industrial revolution policy the UK has and yeah. how that appeals to you. Can you explain why you see that as an opportunity? It's the, the incentives. You know, the UK government, the Canadian government's done this too, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the US. Th these are massive game changers in terms of the opportunity for investment in any category, but they're quite focused on financing the transition associated with the greening of, of the planet mm -hmm. and... Uh, carbon pricing and all that. So it represents for us a terrific opportunity. And as I said, for pension funds, endowment funds, longer term capital, it's, it's the, right, mm -hmm. the right kind of incentives. Now, is there anything Canada could learn from their green policy? Uh, you'll hear me say this again later. I'm going to leave policy for policymakers, but um, I hope you all got that joke. Uh, um, Actually, you know, I think the Canadian government has really studied, I know it's true because we've talked to them, they've studied the IRA, they've studied the UK and Europe, and, uh, you know, they've made substantial and proportionally equivalent kind of investments in Canada. So I'm, I'm quite sure they've, I can't teach them more than they've taught themselves. <laughs> so it sounds like you see climate transition as more of an opportunity than a liability. Would you say it's so? It's both. Both? It's both, Yeah. I mean, you know, for heavy emitters, it's, it's a problem because they've got to adjust. Carbon, for sure, is going to cost more. Um, we have a philosophy that we don't think divesting of um, heavy emitters is wise for two reasons. One, it will put those companies in hands that aren't committed to change. Uh, so not great investment owners. And secondly, it starves the companies who most need capital, the capital they need. It makes it more expensive. Instead, what we'd like to do is we'll buy heavy emitting companies, companies and help them decarbonize and make some money on the way through, and that has the value of adding to the planet. So mm -hmm. we really, really think, um, and I'm looking at Marlene as I say this, we really think this is one of the great opportunities of, in the investment world right now in a world that's pretty short of investment opportunities, mm -hmm. although people always say that. You spoke about AIMCO opening a new office in Singapore. Yeah. Um, where do you see the Asian market headed and how important is it to you? Well, it's fast growing. Uh, it is the largest continental market in the world. We don't think of it that way. And we have 2% of our assets there. So, you know, Kevin and I and Marlene were asked in Singapore, what's your target? You know, more is actually the answer. It's no more complicated than more because we've got room to grow. Um, we, you know, there are parts of Asia where the rule of law, China in particular, is a pro it can be a problem in terms of rule of law and transparency. Um, but, but gosh, that's a market that's cheap and growing. Uh, and so my guess is what we'll probably do is position ourselves in 
economies around that market that can participate in the growth, but don't have some of the risks. Mm -hmm. You mentioned rule of law and transparency. Mm -hmm. um, that's the dilemma with China, right? So what's your approach to uh, investing in China? We, we actually have very minimal investments in China, and most of it through external fund managers who have those positions. In fact, I think all of it through external fund managers who have those positions. We're quite, like most investors, quite reticent about China. Um, but the consumer is going to grow there. And so if you could find opportunities that participate in the growth of consumer spending in China without actually being in China, those are attractive, depending on the price, right? Depending on whether there's a mispricing opportunity in that case. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants that kind of investment. Of course. Uh, in your remarks, you were talking about the importance of identifying unconventional opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, what unconventional opportunities do you see on the horizon? I think climate change may be one, because China could be one. Uh, and I'm not going to say, I'll give it as an example. China is ridiculously cheap. Like, it's really, really cheap. Now, the problem is, there may be a reason for that, right? It may, there may be no mispricing. So those are the sorts of things that we have to think about when we invest this money. If we're looking at an infrastructure project in China, which we would not do. Um, an infrastructure project in, say, Vietnam, or some South Asian country, will look at... I'm, I'm avoiding the question around China, aren't I? Uh, yeah. Look, we're just going to have to be very, very careful about China, because there are reasons why it's mispriced. Hmm. But conviction around something like that well, what are those reasons? It's transparency, rule yeah. of law, all that stuff. You know, look, Ontario teachers made a bet on inflation and shifted into absolute return last year. I think it was a courageous bet, unconventional. And in hindsight, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that was obvious. They outperformed everybody because they made an unconventional bet. That's the kind of thing that we need to be able to make for our clients. Mm -hmm. well, I have some audience questions here, so I'll ask one. What are you anticipating these days most? Natural gas, renewables, or infrastructure? That's a hard question to answer. Um, what am I anticipating? I'm anticipating that there's, a, you know, infrastructure in Canada has massive value in terms of um, pricing energy, getting energy from producing areas to markets. And I'm thinking, when I think of infrastructure in Canada, for example, I'm thinking of midstream assets. Those have great economic value. Renewables, of course, um, people think that's an attractive investment. It's also really expensive, though, because there's a lot of money chasing renewables. One of the best investments we made was a Spanish wind company that we sold, I want to say, a year ago, and, called Eolia. It was a renewables business. We made a huge amount of money on it. But you've got to have the conviction to sell as well as buy. So those are all, depending on the situation, Sabrina, those are all investment opportunities we'd certainly look at. And I've got... A tough question here, which uh -huh. I was going to ask you anyways. Someone is curious to hear your perspective on Premier Danielle Smith's proposal no! to separate and pull out $334 billion from the CPP who and what that means for AIMCO. Who wants to hear my answer to that question? Probably everyone. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave policy to policymakers. That is a cop-out. You've got to give a, us something. It's totally The audience wants to know. I know. Yeah. Well, look. Um, we really do need, this is a political matter. It really is a political matter. And when people like me get messing around it, I can get misinterpreted. So there's a process. We'll probably be asked our views, and we haven't even thought about it. But the policy matter, you know, we basically, we're told under legislation by the province who we work for. If that changes, we'll do a great job. 
Okay. I'll turn to a safer topic. Well, actually, I'm going to ask about risk management. Yeah. So, in today's economic environment, and no one seems to agree, is a recession coming? Are we already in one? How are you managing that sort of risk? Well, that's really core to what we do. You know, we have to have a point of view around the economic cycle. Diversification, again, is a place where we can, we can diversify away a lot of risk by being invested in different economies, right? If we're invested in Asian economies that are not experiencing the recession, while we're experiencing one in Canada, we're better off. Um, and so repositioning our portfolio, our client's portfolio, to be less weighted towards Western economies that are, more, that are much more experiencing inflation than others is part of what we're doing. Um, we're looking at, in the infrastructure business, we'll look at um, assets that have inflation protection, because inflation is going to be part of the story. You know, my point of view on inflation and, and my point of view on a recession doesn't really matter. Um, I have one, but it actually doesn't matter. What is it? I, you know, I think we're heading into a recession. I think it's probably a year out, but I'll be wrong. We'll find out. Yeah. Okay. I want to take you back to your previous job for a second as CEO <laughs> of CMHC. As a millennial, I'm very invested in the I housing crisis. My head of communications is squirming now. <laughs> I'm wondering, from your time there, how do you think we got to the position right now where housing is so unaffordable, and what's the biggest thing you think we need to do to yeah. return to affordability? We got to where we are because we glorify home ownership, period. We make it too easy for young people to buy houses, and the demand is massive, and there's no supply. I mean, it's just supply and demand. Um, we allow people to buy houses with basically no equity. That's how our mortgage insurance program works. So you could fix that by increasing the amount of minimum down payment. And, you know, that discussion's happened with policymakers in Ottawa, I think, based on my recollection. But it requires political courage. You know, I'll tell you, if I were prime minister and I'd get outvoted, I'd never get in. For this reason, I would tax capital gains on people's homes. If you make it less attractive to own homes, Houses won't be as high. Now, I'm telling you, there's no politician who'll ever do this because they'll lose their job. So we're stuck. We're stuck. And we need, in, we need immigration in this country because that's a source of economic growth. But gosh, why aren't we building houses? You know, we, we don't. The supply constraints in cities and the inability of cities and provinces and the federal government to work together on a solution, it's endemic. So it's complicated by all those things. Too much demand, not enough supply. And every time that happens in economics, prices are higher. Mm -hmm. On a broader economic scale, how much do you think it's a liability for our economy that so much money is invested in housing and it makes up such a large part of our GDP? It's this thing. We've glorified home ownership. You know, Canada's economy in many ways looks like a perpetual motion machine. These things, friction will bring it down. Like, it just doesn't work. You can't have an economy built on housing. Housing's an outcome, kind of. You know, you have to have people working. Yeah. I know you don't like policy questions, but I'm going to ask anyways. If you were back at CMHC tomorrow, what's the one policy you'd want to enact? I, well, the answer to that is I would make housing taxable properly, capital gains on housing. Never going to happen. I'd get fired. So what's the most practical solution? I would increase the minimum down payment on mortgage loan insurance. Okay. Two, do you have a It's 5%. Figure? Actually, it's 5%, depending on how you calculate it. It should be 10. Interesting. Okay. And I'm curious how you reconcile. We talk about housing affordability. No one likes to say it, but that means prices have to come yeah. down realistically. Yeah. And at the same time, 
pension funds have a lot of invested in real estate. Um, how, do, how do you reconcile that and um, stop, you know, you talk about teachers, nurses, yeah. people want to retire from getting hurt if and when prices come down. Well, we should invest in rental housing, right? There's a lot of money to be made in rental housing, and that supply helps the problem. So I'm looking at our head of real estate, and he's going, yeah, boss. <laughs> we should do that, right? And it depends on the pricing, but that's what pension funds can do, and, and in fact, that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So going back to your current job, what do you see as the biggest investment opportunities short-term and long-term in Canada and outside of it right now? Well, that's a big question. And, you know, I would say in general, uh, transition finance is a massive opportunity. It really is. Um, There is another one that I'm just overlooking in my mind that I'll come back to because I was thinking about this yesterday. But I will talk about transition finance. It's right in front of us. We know it needs to happen, and it needs capital, and it needs patient capital. So for people like us, and Marlene has a whole strategy with her team around how we're going to go after this and where we're going to invest. And part of that includes helping companies that are high emitters decarbonize and having expertise that, and, and a conversation that we've organized in Alberta. Given that it's an energy hub and there's so much thinking around energy and energy transition in Alberta, we think there's something that we can add. to that conversation. Well, as you see, I have a couple more audience questions, so I'll go ahead with them. How does the higher rate environment change the investment outlook for AIMCO? Do you think higher rates will persist? I do. Higher rates are a function of two things, right? Inflation and where we price risk. And core inflation, you know, inflation used to be like, let me say this differently. Monetary authorities, central banks, like to keep inflation around 2%. They have consistently underhit underachieved that target by about 0.5%. They've been around one and a half for the last bunch of years. Now, core inflation is running five, six, seven percent. That'll, that'll ease, and hopefully it'll ease because we need to control expectations. It probably settles in at something like 2.5%, so they'll overstrike. And that's okay. If we can keep expectations under control, that's fine. But it does mean that, inf- that interest rates will be higher by some amount. In addition, um, because of a bunch of different things, including monetary policy intervention, rice uh, and globalization, over-globalization, which is a kind of a bad, stupid word, but risk got mispriced. We, we ended up spending money that we didn't have as economies, as governments, as corporations, because risk was mispriced. It was basically free. Money was free. The world is now repricing risk and trying to figure out what the right level is. Those two things added together, that's interest rates. So um, it does, you know, we've got to make sure that when we're making investments, we're looking at through this future lens, not the old lens of low rates. And, and that's exactly what we and other firms are doing. Mm-hmm. We also have, are we making gains in Parkinson research? Huh. Thank you for your efforts. Yeah, okay. So the event's called The Growling Beaver. If you want to sponsor anybody, her name's Sonia Verma, <laughs> my wife. It's, it's this Saturday, and it's, a, it's an amazing event. Um, I'm happy to say, and there's some other folks in this room who know who they are, who are big contributors to this and also live with Parkinson's, which, as you can see, is not necessarily a life sentence. Um, so amazingly, in the last year, a, gen- uh, a biomarker was found in the ability to identify something called folded alpha-synuclein, write this down, in spinal fluid. 
And that's an amazing thing. It means that we can test drugs. It means we can test titration, we can test treatments, and understand how it's affecting somebody's response. It's actually a really powerful thing. The Michael J. Fox Foundation, through which most research has been funded, it's an amazingly successful organization, um, wants to raise a billion dollars around this. And uh, well, I hope they do. I hope they do too. Yeah. Really, I do. I want to finish off with a question about your job now and when you made the transition from CMHC to AIMCO, yeah. what's something that surprised you and you think other people would find surprising about what you do every day? Huh. Um, yeah, I guess the one thing, I wouldn't say it necessarily surprised me, but I think it surprises many people. AIMCO's different from most of the other pension fund managers. We have many, we have 16 clients. We don't work on behalf of of the nurses of Ontario, like my colleagues at Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan do. That's one basic client. Or teachers work on behalf of the teachers. We work on behalf of teachers, nurses, et cetera. And that means we actually have to interact with them differently. And they have certain choices they keep for themselves that we don't get. Because from a fiduciary point of view, it's the right thing for them to do, and I'll bore you all in a second. But what it means is we can make being a client organization a, a virtue. You know. If, if we pay attention to our clients and we do always what they want, then we will perform better and that's going to make us a stronger organization. And I think in the past, we viewed it to be an anchor. And I think, I know our team at AIMCO views it to be a propeller. So that's a good that's way to a, end. That's a difference. Yeah. Well, thank you, Evan. I thank appreciate you your time. Thanks and I know everyone else does too. So let's give them a round Thanks of applause. All. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. Awesome. Excellent. Uh, thanks, and uh, good afternoon. Just a quick thank you to our, uh, our, our great speaker and our moderator. So I'm Dave Hurd. I'm a partner at EY, and I'm honored to be able to say thank you to Evan for sharing with us his perspectives on you know, some very interesting topics, um, specifically how decision-making um, is influenced by the diversity that you need and how important that is to you know, the investment decisions you make. And I think that's a, a great learning for us all to take away. And then obviously for the great work that you're doing for both Parkinson's and, and the community. So thank you very much. And um, thank you for challenging Sabrina. Um, uh, definitely Evan on some of those questions and, and even going back in his career history, um, which was uh, interesting and enlightening for everybody. So that concludes um, today's event. And I believe that Glenn has a few final remarks. So thank you. Thank you, Dave. And just in closing, um, I suspect a number of you are looking for an opportunity to relive Evan quoting Kenny Rogers. So I remind you that all of our events, all of our past events are available on canadianclub.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and also our upcoming events are li listed there. And I'll just list a couple today that are happening the rest of this week. So first, tomorrow we have the Governor of Nevada, Joe Lombardo, who will discuss bilateral relations with Ontario. And on Thursday, we'll be partnering with the Business Council of Canada and First Nations Major Projects Coalition to present a dynamic panel on Indigenous ownership and Canada's economic future. Please visit our website, as I said, for more information, and we hope you can join us. Let me conclude by thanking our AV partner, VVC Live, for facilitating today's event. Have a great afternoon, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.